By the way, if you, if you want to start with, with just a broad question, uh, I, I, I have prepared a response to a broad question that might, might be good for framing purposes if you want to do it. Whereas basically, I'm, I'm glad that uh, the FTC is working hard to, to try and do something about the abuse of non-compete clauses, but I'm sad that they have chosen an approach that uh, is doomed to failure. Uh, that's that's a good broad, broad answer. What, what question did you want me to ask? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, something like general, like uh, what, what do you think generally about the, the FTC's efforts to deal with non-competes? Something like that. I... Richard Pierce is a longtime law professor at George Washington University. Um, how long have you been at GW? I know it's more than 25 years because they gave me this little award. Pierce is an administrative law professor. And before we get too far into this episode, maybe we should explain what administrative law is. Everyone knows that Congress makes laws, but a lot of people don't know that agencies often fill in the blanks. They administer those laws. Administrative law is all about what agencies actually have the power to do. And it's what Pierce has been teaching for, well, at least 25 years, if that award is to be believed. I think it's still here somewhere. Pierce has more than 20 books to his name. His work has been cited in hundreds of cases, including at least a dozen Supreme Court opinions. And the way Pierce sees it, the FTC's proposed nationwide non-compete ban is a non-starter. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very supportive uh, and enthusiastic about FTC's efforts to move aggressively uh, against abuses of, use of, of non-compete clauses. I, I'm just very disappointed that they've chosen a procedural approach that has no chance of success. Welcome to Uncommon Law. I'm your host, Matthew Schwartz, and this is our fifth and final episode in our series about the proposed non-compete ban. We've already looked at how the ban would work and explored the policy arguments for and against it. But today, on Uncommon Law, we'll delve into a more fundamental question, one that we posed at the very beginning of this series. Does the FTC even have the authority to pass this rule? It's worth noting that Professor Pierce's opinion is just that, his opinion. Yes, he's studied the law for decades, and it's an informed opinion, but plenty of other folks vehemently disagree. Of course the agency has the power to do this, they say, and we'll hear from those people too. There's disagreement on this point. The only thing that is clear no one knows for a fact that the FTC definitely has the authority to make rules about unfair methods of competition, sometimes called UMC. The Congressional Research Service, a nonpartisan research body for Congress, has looked into this. Their conclusion? Quote, the existence of this authority is unsettled. So this is a pretty untested authority. This is Dan Papskin. Hi, I'm Dan Papskin. I cover antitrust for Bloomberg Law. He's been reporting on this FTC proposal since the notice of proposed rulemaking was issued in January. He's also been looking closely at all of the comments on the proposal. The agency is currently reviewing the avalanche of 27,000 comments it got. 27,000 comments. Yes. 27, three zeros. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any sense of what those 27,000 comments say? Like... 
Is there an overarching feeling? Like, what's the zeitgeist? So I wish I could tell you that I, I had read every single one and that I had them printed out in a nice big stack in my apartment. I do not. Um, <laughs> but I have read a pretty significant number of them. Mm-hmm. And it seems like overall, it's a lot of like normal people in favor of the FTC banning these things. Really? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of business groups who aren't. There are a lot of people who are pushing back. Industry groups saying we need them to maintain our workers to make sure they don't steal our intellectual property and our trade secrets. But overall, if I had to say... The balance of it seems to be in favor of banning non-competes. Interesting. That's bipartisan? Yeah, surprisingly bipartisan. But of those thousands of comments, perhaps one of the more important ones comes from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which represents millions of American businesses. They lay out in some detail, 46 pages to be precise, why they believe this rule is a bad idea and why, in their opinion, the agency doesn't even have the authority to pass it. And once this rule, or a version of it, is finalized, probably sometime next summer... It's very likely that the Chamber of Commerce and some variety of business groups sue the FTC in an effort to block the rule. Some might say it's more than just very likely. Within weeks of the FTC proposal this January, the president of the chamber wrote in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that the chamber will oppose the proposed regulation with all the tools at our disposal, including litigation. And the chamber isn't happy about the direction the FTC is taking under the leadership of Chair Lena Khan. The real question for the chamber is, does the FTC have the legal authority to write this rule? Because if they can write this rule, they have other rules they want to write. That's Sean Heather, the chamber's senior VP for antitrust and competition who confirmed that the chamber is ready to challenge this rule in court. It's not as if we wake up every day wanting to challenge the FTC. We're in a new environment today, and the kinds of policies and enforcement tactics uh, that we see coming out of this FTC is something that we haven't seen at least uh, for 40-plus years. So, what would a court challenge look like? What kinds of arguments might the Chamber of Commerce make? So there are three potential arguments to be made here. They're kind of complex, so let's jump into it. So number one is about whether the Federal Trade Commission Act, which created the agency back in 1914, actually gave it the authority to pass rules like this. Dan is talking about something you may remember Chair Lena Khan talking about in episode one. The commission's proposal preliminarily finds that non-competes are an unfair method of competition and violate Section 5 of the FTC Act. So let's just get this out of the way up front. This argument is a little wonky. It's about what lawyers call statutory interpretation. It's not the most exciting thing to most people. But it's one way to determine whether or not agencies have the power to do things. So first we have to look at the exact language of the text of the statute. Um, where is the text? Yeah, it's weirdly impossible to, to find the text of the FTC Act. It's like the, the plain text of the statute. You know what? It's impossible if you're not a subscriber to Bloomberg Law, the complete legal research resource that lets you search by keyword, title, jurisdiction, And more. Which is really useful when you're searching for complex statutes, like the Federal Trade Commission Act on Bloomberg Law. But I'm not actually near my computer, and I'm not logged in on my phone, so I'll just... I'll just use Siri, I guess? Hey Siri, show me Section 5 of the FTC Act. 
Searching Google for sexy beats with the smooth backing track. What? Wow. What the hell? <gasps> uh, I'm gonna have nightmares about this. No, I like this. This is perfect statutory interpretation music. Dan, mm-hmm. let's get textual. <laughs> this is a quote from section five. Unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce and unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce are hereby declared unlawful. Mm-hmm. The commission is hereby empowered and directed to prevent persons, partnerships, or corporations from using unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce. That sounds straightforward. It seems very clear, just plain language. I looked it up. Prevent. Verb. To keep something from happening. <laughs> that sounds like a rule. So why is this such an open question? It seems like plain language, but we have a whole bunch of case law and history here that basically tells us that when Congress tells agencies it wants them to issue rules, it has to explicitly do that. It has to say, here's your rulemaking statute. Here are the kinds of rules you can make. Here's the sorts of penalties you can levy. Uh, here's a process for making them. So we can't just assume that the FTC being told to prevent certain acts and practices gives it rulemaking authority. We have to look to see whether there's something else in there that specifically talks about rulemaking. I think we need to talk to the professor about this. That's probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah, good idea, yeah. Okay, Professor Pierce, Section 5 directs the agency to prevent businesses from using unfair methods of competition. So what does prevent mean in this context? Uh, Section 5 makes unfair methods of competition unlawful and then empowers the FTC to use adjudication to enforce and implement that section. Adjudication. Okay, back to Dan. Hey. Uh, Could you explain what adjudication means in this context? Absolutely. So here we're talking about where the FTC goes after a company at its in-house court. Goes after a company for doing something wrong? Yeah, for pursuing an unfair method of competition or an unfair and deceptive act or practice. One company at a time? Yeah. So that seems like it might take a while. Yeah, there's only like 700 attorneys at the agency and only a small portion of them do this sort of thing, right? Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know how many businesses out there, but it's a lot more than 700. Yeah. <laughs> Probably millions. As many as there are stars in the sky. <laughs> in all seriousness, there are inherent limitations with this approach. The FTC has to go uh, after issues on a case-by-case basis. It's like playing whack-a-mole. Got it. Okay, so to sum this up, you can prevent, but when you prevent, that means you'd adjudicate which is after the fact, but if you make a rule, that's not prevention, even though a rule would come before the fact. And prevent is a verb, but adjudicate is also a verb. So interesting. Adjudication is prevention, but after prevention, even though it's after. But rulemaking is also prevention, but it's a different kind of prevention. So... Um, oh, boy. Okay, I think I get it. Man, that's embarrassing. Wait, wait. Okay. I think I figured out an analogy to make this whole system a little more understandable. I do love analogies. And I'm also going to use this as an opportunity to get my baby involved in the podcasting business. Hello. Oh. 
Oh my god. <laughs> she has a voice for podcasting, yeah? doesn't she? I, I totally agree. Here's my analogy. So ready. Let's say I'm chair of an agency that regulates babies. I support that. My agency is called the Family Training Commission. The FTC? The FTC. All right. The job of my version of the FTC is to make sure that babies follow the rules and don't engage in illegal behavior. You know, like the other FTC, the the real one, does with businesses. Mm -hmm. So let's say that Congress has written the Family Training Act. And in Section 5, they've given me a guiding principle. One of my roles as regulator is to ensure that babies don't create untenable marriage conditions for their parents. UMC. Yeah, absolutely. Because that makes raising children harder. (laughs) It certainly does. (laughs) So let's say up until now, my FTC has only had adjudication powers. So, for example, one day the baby stays awake really late and this messes up her sleeping schedule, makes things really difficult for her parents. Um, The bottle routine is all out of whack. It's just really interfering with everything. That can't be good for a marriage. No, it's not. There's sleepless nights, fighting. <laughs> so I'm the chair of the FTC. And and I can look at this thing that has happened. Um, baby stayed up too late. This led to untenable marriage conditions. So under my adjudication power, I can find the baby? Does she have, like, snacks she really likes? Like, treats? She likes bananas. So maybe she, like, doesn't get as many bananas for a while or something. No bananas for a week. Like, I'm basically just punishing her after the fact for something that happened. Right, right. Carrot and a stick. Or more of the stick. But yes. So that's adjudication powers. And just so we're clear on this analogy, it's like when the actual FTC is looking at a company's behavior and saying that something they did is an unfair method of competition. UMC. Right. But I'm like, you know what? This after-the-fact enforcement isn't all that effective. Um... Because first, I've got to catch the baby doing something that it's not supposed to do. Right. You're playing whack-a-mole like we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And then I've got to connect this baby's activity to untenable marriage conditions. UMC. Like I've got to show that it caused it. And it's it's a very fact-specific inquiry. And I've got to do that with all the babies. I've got to prove that every time a baby stayed up late, it led to UMC in that instance. Yeah. There's just a lot of work that goes into adjudication. And the Family Training Commission is not some huge agency. So as chair of the FTC, I want to make a rule. You want rulemaking powers, damn it. I want rulemaking powers. Because babies staying up too late leads to untenable marriage conditions, let it be known, no, no, throughout the land, that from this point forward, baby bedtime is 7.30 p.m. All right. Any bedtime later than 7.30 p.m. is presumptively an untenable marriage condition. Right. You're setting a threshold. Mm -hmm. Can I do this? (laughs) Well, you've never really done this before. You've never tried to make a substantive rule like this before. You've only really done procedural ones. So, like... What parent does what task, um, when bottles need to be refrigerated, that sort of thing. Interesting. Okay. But then now I'm trying to make an actual substantive rule. Yeah. So that's called legislative rulemaking powers. It's what Congress has to grant to you. 
So can I do this? Well, I don't know. Do you have legislative rulemaking power authority? Section 5 isn't too clear on that. But wait. <sighs> but wait. I just noticed Section 6 of the Family Training Commission Act gives me the ability to make rules. Section 6? Where in Section 6? Oh, right, right here. Section 6, which is a very long section uh, dealing primarily with investigations, has buried in it one sentence that says, uh, the commission has the power to classify corporations and issue rules. Professor Pierce is talking about the actual FTC Act, not my baby FTC Act. Can you say, Dada? <laughs> but the principle is the same. There's this line in Section 6G that says the commission can make rules and regulations for the purpose of carrying out the provisions of this subchapter. Okay, so you're trying to combine Section 6G with Section 5 to show that you've got full rulemaking powers when taken together? Exactly. Am I a genius or what? <laughs> I mean, that is what the FTC is arguing. Yeah. Yes, and, and, and the statute was enacted in 1914. For the first 50 years of the existence of the statute, the FTC took the position that it did not have the power to issue legislative rules, and Congress relied on that testimony as the basis for enactment of, of uh, half a dozen statutes that specifically conferred on FTC the power to issue legislative rules in much narrower circumstances. Uh, and it was only after 50 years that uh, somebody at FTC said, oh, maybe we do have that power. So, can the FTC do this? In 1973, one court, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, ruled on whether the FTC really has the power to pass rules preventing unfair methods of competition. When we return, we'll learn about that 1973 case. We'll find out why it's so important to the FTC, and we'll hear why plenty of people think it would not turn out the same way today. That opinion can charitably be called an exercise in wishful thinking. Stick around. Bloomberg Law is the only comprehensive legal research and technology platform to provide unlimited access and continuous product enhancements at no additional cost. Access best-in-class state and federal dockets coverage. We bring you daily reporting of major legal and regulatory developments, along with expert insights. That's the Bloomberg Law difference. In the late 1960s, the FTC was looking around at the consumer landscape, and they noticed that some people were paying more for gasoline than they needed to. In fact, the agency estimated that the average driver paid over $50 extra every year for unnecessarily high-octane gasoline. That's the equivalent of about $50 a month today. So they passed a rule requiring that the gas stations post octane numbers on gasoline pumps. And the oil companies sued. For many years, industry practices have been controlled by the Federal Trade Commission, many times with sweeping regulations and guidelines. Now that vast authority of the FTC has been questioned. Oh, National Petroleum Refiners versus FTC, yes. Yes, the, the, the question there was whether the FTC could exercise legislative rulemaking power 
to issue a rule that requires every retailer of gasoline to post the octane content of uh, the gasoline on the pump. The court looked to the words of the statute, specifically Section 6G, and said, yeah, this says they can make rules. So what if that line is buried in a section about corporations and procedures? Other agencies can make substantive legislative rules. We're going to read the word rules broadly. They convinced uh, the D.C. Circuit in 1973 to uphold the exercise of that power. The FTC loves this case because the court said the agency which enforces antitrust laws has broad power. Suffice it to say, the court wrote, that it cuts deeply and widely across virtually all of American business. When the FTC says it has rulemaking power, National Petroleum is the case the agency cites as proof of that authority. But this is a case from 50 years ago. It's basically the last time a court of appeals ever weighed in on this power, and plenty of people think it would not be decided the same way today. That is the kind of exercise in statutory interpretation that was rare in 1973, absolutely unheard of today. Courts simply don't reason that way today. So walk me through how courts typically analyze statutes and why this court's reasoning wouldn't fly today. They look at the language of the statute, certainly, but they also look at context. And and here you've got enormous contextual problems with the approach the court took in 1973. Uh, One of those contextual problems is this is just a brief reference to the power to issue rules buried in a long section of a statute that doesn't have anything to do with the decision-making process of the agency. That, that is described in the prior section. And it's buried in a sentence where it's coupled with the power to classify corporations. So that alone uh, suggests that it's just highly unlikely that it was an effort to give them the power to issue legislative rules. Then you get to the fact that for 50 years, that's the way the FTC interpreted the statute. Uh, It's very, very hard for, for the agency then to persuade a court, well, for 50 years we were wrong, and, and, and now, all of a sudden, we spotted this brief reference to rulemaking. We're now going to take it out of context and use it as the basis. And I don't think there's a single member of the federal judiciary today that would, would adopt reasoning of that type. There's a famous Scalia metaphor. Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. It comes from a majority opinion about how much power Congress was delegating to an agency. In other words, if Congress wants to give an agency a big power, like the power to write a rule blocking any unfair methods of competition throughout the economy, it's not going to stick that language in a sentence in another paragraph where it's open to interpretation. They'll put it in one of those big Roman numeral headings, bold, all caps, and it's going to be called the FTC's power to make rules regarding unfair competition. In other words, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. Certainly, this is a good illustration of that 
metaphor that, that the court has used on a number of occasions. Uh, when the court uses that metaphor, it's usually applying something called the major questions doctrine. Controversial major question doctrine act that is relied upon is questionable. Think about major questions. What they really mean it means you can't go out and do rulemaking unless Congress has explicitly said yes, go do this. There are two other arguments. Again, Bloomberg Law's Dan Papskin. Argument number two is the major questions doctrine, which I'm sure most of us are uh, a little too familiar with at this point. Not me. <laughs> You're not tired of it yet. I mean, I've heard of it. But it wasn't something I learned about back when I went to law school. Yeah, so this is an idea that's been percolating for a long time, but it's taken real hold with this makeup of the Supreme Court. And it basically means that Congress has to be clear when delegating its authority to agencies on major issues of national, political, or economic significance. This came up two terms ago in West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. With that Supreme Court ruling limiting the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. It's a blow to what conservatives see as the administrative state that any kind of major policy decision has to be explicitly authorized by Congress. And the court invoked the doctrine again just this summer when it struck down President Biden's student loan relief plan. Chief Justice Roberts kept coming back to this idea, this questions doctrine, the major questions doctrine, meaning if there is something so significant to happen in the United States politically or economically, then there needs to be an express authority given to the executive branch to do so. So what exactly counts as a question of major national political or economic significance? Well, I think we're a long way from having a good answer to that. What it seems to require is a situation in which an agency takes an action that has very significant economic and or political implications, and it takes that action based only on its reliance on a very old statute that's very broadly worded. And in that circumstance, the current majority of the Supreme Court says, well, that's simply not enough to support an action this significant, and uh, we would need to see much more powerful uh, evidence of uh, legislative intent to confer this power on, uh, on the agency. So, Dan. Hello. So the argument here would be that making all non-compete agreements illegal would be a question of major economic significance. Right. So the FTC estimates that about one in five Americans are covered by a non-compete agreement. And by banning them, we would save about $300 billion a year. Billion. Billion with a B. Whoa. I mean, that's a pretty clearly major question of national significance. So it's ironic because the agency itself has made the argument of how significant and how major the effect of non-competes is on the economy. Mm -hmm. And that's the argument that they're going to face. Yeah, absolutely. Your Honor, the FTC itself has admitted that non-competes cost workers nearly a third of a trillion dollars and impact tens of millions of Americans. This is, by their own definition, a major question of economic significance. Yep, exactly. I hope that they don't use the major questions doctrine very often, if at all. Why not? 
it's way too simplistic. Just to give you a feel for the problems that are being caused by the vagueness and open-ended nature of the major questions doctrine, a researcher just did a study of what lower courts are doing with it. You mean over the past couple terms, since the justices have been using it? Yes. You know, it's only been around for, for a year and a half now, and yet we have a score or more of cases in which district judges are saying, ah, this is a major question, therefore the agency loses. It's a cop-out. It's a way of avoiding the hard work that judges should be doing of looking at the language of the statute, comparing it with the action the agency took, and looking at the context in which the language appears, and, and the context in which the agency acts. That's hard work. And uh, the major questions uh, doctrine is just a lazy judge's way of avoiding work. Sounds like an exciting new tool for a judge. Oh, absolutely. If, if you're a judge who dislikes what agencies do, the major questions doctrine was perfectly made for you. Okay, Dan. So we've got the FTC Act, major questions doctrine, and you said there's one more legal argument? Yes, there's one more big one. Um, so this is the non-delegation doctrine. It's a doctrine that holds that Congress cannot delegate all of its authority to other agencies and that by passing a rule like this, the agency is effectively stepping into Congress's role. Professor Pierce is not a fan of this doctrine. I do not like the non-delegation doctrine at all. It's only been used once in all of history in 1935, uh, and and, uh, that involved the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was a really extreme statute that conferred on a federal agency. Um, The the professor went on for a bit here. That cartel can control all the pricing and output decisions. Suffice it to say, he really doesn't like it. That is the only occasion in which the Supreme Court has ever invoked the non-delegation doctrine. I hope it remains the only occasion. So there you have it, the three main arguments that the FTC doesn't have the authority to pass a ban on non-compete agreements. Yep, that's basically it. Dan Papskin, antitrust reporter for Bloomberg. I certainly hope whatever courts address this issue do not rely on the non-delegation doctrine. Thank you, Professor Pierce. Uh, Dan... Thank you so much for joining us. That would be a preposterous decision. We get it, Professor. You don't like the non-delegation. Horrible uh, uh, decision. Dan, thank you. Thanks for having me. When we return, we'll hear the arguments that the FTC does have the authority to ban non-competes. And we'll hear from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which says they really don't want to fight. It's not like we have great pleasure in wanting to spend our time and energy and talent pushing back on the agency. But they will if they have to. It's that the agency has decided to really go off the rails here and in the direction they're headed, uh, and it requires response. After the break, the conclusion to our Uncommon Law series on non-compete agreements. Stick around. The difference between missed opportunity and actionable intelligence. For in-house attorneys who strive to provide superior counsel and strategic advice, Bloomberg Law offers an unmatched platform of analytics tools and business intelligence. 
all to help improve productivity, mitigate risk, and inform decision-making. For the comprehensive platform that helps you work smarter and faster, the difference is Bloomberg Law. Professor Pierce. Yeah. What's the strongest argument you could make that the FTC has the power to pass the non-compete ban? That uh, a very important court, the D.C. Circuit, so held in 1973. You're talking about National Petroleum, the case about the octane numbers on the gas pumps, which we just talked about a few minutes ago? Yes. And that's never been overruled? No, it's not been overruled, no. But uh, no other court outside the District of Columbia needs to pay attention to it. So if the non-compete ban were challenged in a different circuit, National Petroleum wouldn't apply? No. Certainly the fact of the D.C. Circuit's opinion will cause judges in other circuits to be even more careful about the reasoning they employ and the decision that they make. Decisions like that are potentially influential with other circuits. They're never binding on other circuits. Okay, so let's just put aside for the moment that if this rule is challenged anywhere else besides the D.C. Circuit, the FTC's favorite case, National Petroleum, doesn't control. The fact remains that a very important circuit has ruled that the FTC has this power. And plenty of people look at the statutory language and come to the same conclusion. If you look at 6G of the FTC Act, it says the FTC can write rules and regulations to carry out the purposes of the FTC Act. That's pretty unambiguous language right there. This is Sandeep Vahisan, legal director of the Open Markets Institute, which kicked off this whole rulemaking by asking the FTC to ban non-competes back in 2019. We heard from him in episode one, and he thinks the FTC absolutely has the power to pass substantive rules. I'm struck by how broad the language of that provision is. So I think on textualist grounds, the FTC is on solid footing. I think critics of the FTC's power to do rulemakings rely on some tortured reasons. They say, well, the the text doesn't mean what it says. It, It only allows the FTC to do procedural rules. But I don't see that anywhere in 6G. 6G says rules and regulations to carry out the purposes of the subchapter, the subchapter being the entire FTC Act. Okay, but what about the major questions doctrine? The idea that a non-compete ban would have a major economic impact and Congress didn't clearly say the FTC can do something like this. I think this will be a serious issue for the FTC, and I think this could be the most powerful legal argument against a rulemaking here. But even on major questions, I think the FTC has a powerful argument. Non-compete clauses have actually been a part of antitrust law since the passage of the Sherman Act in 1890. For the non-lawyers in the audience, the Sherman Act is a cornerstone of U.S. antitrust law, and it prevents unreasonable restraints of trade. So if you look at the common law of the 19th century, the term restraint of trade at the time actually referred to practices that prevented someone from entering a certain line of trade, entering a certain occupation. So under an originalist understanding of restraint of trade, non-competes are the first restraint of trade in the common law. Okay, interesting. So the argument would be that banning non-competes is the 
kind of thing that the FTC has been doing for a long time? Yeah, that's right. So the idea that the FTC is doing something novel and unprecedented here is actually belied by that history. Uh, Common law judges thought above all else that non-competes were a restraint of trade. So there is that history that's very helpful to the FTC. Okay, that's two of the three arguments. As for non-delegation... I do not like the non-delegation doctrine at all. Fahisan is similarly bearish on this one. Non-delegation has not only been dormant for nearly a century, it's largely been dormant since 1787. And critics of the FTC, critics of progressive administrative action are trying to revive a principle that has no basis in history or even constitutional text. So it's an open question whether the agency has the power to ban non-competes, a question that will almost certainly be challenged in court, because a very powerful association fervently believes that making these kinds of rules is a role for Congress, not the FTC. We're now talking about the return of the national nanny, which is something uh, the Washington Post labeled the FTC uh, back in the early 80s. Sean Heather of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. To the degree there's a national nanny, it's the United States Congress. You know, Congress passes laws that we all have to live by. It's an elected body. And whether, you know, the chamber likes the laws that are passed or open markets likes the laws that are passed, we all have to live with the laws the United States Congress passes. Not five unelected people at the FTC. And if, under the goal of preventing unfair methods of competition, the FTC can write this rule, the chamber is worried about what other rules they could impose. In that Wall Street Journal op-ed, Chamber President Suzanne Clark wrote, The minds of progressive activists must be running wild with ideas of what they could do if this approach is allowed to stand. Don't like the pay gap between executives and non-executives? The FTC could simply declare it unfair and regulate it. Think that businesses above a certain size shouldn't be allowed to get any bigger through mergers? The FTC could simply declare those businesses can't make acquisitions. This fight, she wrote, is about much more than the fate of non-compete agreements. The agency is clear about trying to get rid of things that they think constrict it, but the agency is not at all clear about limits that they place on their authority. I think there is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Ultimately, this all comes back to Lena Khan, the new FTC chair who has shaken up the agency. Some might say she's trying to shake them out of their complacency. I requested an interview with Khan. The FTC's Office of Public Affairs did not respond. But she's long been known for her politically progressive positions. In fact, before she was chair of the FTC, Khan actually helped launch open markets. She spent seven years working there, rising in the ranks from researcher all the way to legal director before leaving in 2018. Remember, it was the Open Markets Institute that asked the FTC to ban non-competes in 2019. Years before Khan took over, the FTC published a statement of enforcement principles saying they would take a restrained approach. This was back in 2015 during the Obama administration. Basically, the FTC had said they wouldn't go out of their way to find new methods of unfair competition to regulate. 
when Khan became chair? That statement went out the window. Under her stewardship, the FTC wrote a new policy statement, letting companies know that they would take an expansive view of what counts as unfair. And they'll start with non-compete agreements. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. This is Orly Lobel, director of the Center for Employment and Labor Policy at the University of San Diego. It's not a Lena Khan rogue mission, but it really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Non-competes are a really blunt, absolute tool of saying somebody cannot work at all. The conclusion, I think, that is really kind of supported by the research is that it's better to just have a flat, absolute rule that takes away this really blunt tool of non-competes. So the Chamber of Commerce argues that the FTC has radically reinterpreted Section 5. Is it as much of a radical reinterpretation as the Chamber says? I, I don't think it's a radical interpretation at all. Well, not not a radical interpretation, but is it a radical reinterpretation? I would rephrase it to say that they are tackling a neglected frontier. There's lots of frontiers uh, the FTC is tackling. The labor market has been a neglected area of thinking at the federal level. But it is a market, and we now have the empirical research to support this. We have the language and the examples, the the changes that have been happening um, in different states that show that you can create more competitive and fair regions by going after these boilerplate contracts that are, you know, expanding and pervasively affecting all industries. So again, I think it's a new frontier, but it's a natural evolution and it's the right time for the FTC to do something about it. The FTC proposal banning non-competes is still just a proposal. It could be another year or more before a final rule is passed and then several more years as that rule makes its way through the courts. Meanwhile, non-competes are under attack from all fronts. The National Labor Relations Board has issued a memo saying that they also believe non-competes violate the law. And although they're still legal in most states, it seems like every month another state is moving to ban them. By the time the Minnesota legislature adjourned in May, it was difficult to immediately digest the far-reaching impact of all the new laws signed by Governor Walz. Minnesota's non-compete ban went into effect last month. Meanwhile, in New York... Welcome back. The state legislature has passed a bill that would ban non-compete agreements. It is now waiting for the governor's signature. Supporters say if, as expected, New York's governor signs that bill, New York would join Minnesota, California, Oklahoma, and North Dakota as the latest state to almost completely ban non-competes. And multiple proposals have been circulating in Congress to restrict them. Here's Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy speaking about the Workforce Mobility Act. The reason that non-compete agreements are being used at industrial level scale today is not to protect the trade secrets of sandwich making or pet sitting, it's to keep wages down. This practice has become pervasive throughout our economy, and it is a 
just fundamental restraint of free trade. So even if the Supreme Court ultimately finds that the FTC lacks the authority to ban non-competes, their days may still be numbered. Common Law is written and produced by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also did the mixing and the sound design for this episode. My editor is Josh Block, who's the executive producer of videos and podcasts here at Bloomberg Industry Group. Special thanks to Andrew Satter for his editing help on this episode. If my family training commission analogy made perfect sense to you, you have Andrew to thank for that. Additional thanks to Tom Taylor, Jessica Antonelli, and Joel Meyer and especially Dan Papskin, our antitrust reporter, for helping me understand these issues both through our conversations and through his in-depth reporting. There is a lot more coverage of non-compete agreements on the Bloomberg Law website. You can check that out at news.bloomberglaw.com. Read articles by Dan, by plenty of other reporters. This is an agency and an issue that we cover very closely. Go to our website to check that out. If you like this show, please, please review it on Apple Podcasts. I ask every week, and so far only my wife and my mother-in-law have written a review, which I look at the numbers. We've got a lot more listeners than that, and you, you listen all the way through, so I know you like it. It would mean a lot to me if you could just leave a review, like a nice one. We are taking a break while we work on the next season of Uncommon Law. If you have any comments or feedback or ideas, send an email to podcast at bloombergindustry.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Can you say, welcome to Uncommon Law? Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.